Everlane. Everlane is a sponsor of today's show, and they also provided two of the three items of clothing I have on today. I am wearing their summer weight jeans, uh, which I love because they're summer weight, and they're also mid-rise, which is a a rise that I've come to appreciate as I get older. And then I'm wearing uh, their boxy cardigan, which I'm not sure that's the exact name, but you would know it if you saw it. And I'm wearing that here in the middle of summer because the skyway is frozen. It, no matter, <laughs> it's funny because you'd think it would protect you from the elements, but instead it just is an entirely new element. So when I'm downtown, I have to dress in layers. And I do love Everlane. I get compliments on this sweater all the time, particularly. Everlane makes premium essentials. And that's definitely what this sweater is. It's uh, made to last. It's very classic. Um, it is subtly fashionable, not like screaming fashion, but just, you know, it's... It is good looking without being trendy. That is what I would say. And no matter what your style or preference, Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. And because Everlane sells directly to you or to me, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. They have other essentials like the Cotton Crew t-shirt, and they have bags, and they have shoes. Uh, The shoes, I think, sell out pretty quick. I like the shoes because they have a high vamp. I learned what a vamp was because I was talking about Everlane shoes on this show once. You can get Everlane for yourself. Go right now. You can check out my personalized collection at everlane.com slash friends. You will get free shipping on your first order if you go to everlane.com slash friends. Again, that's everlane.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. Sometimes here, we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. And occasionally, we talk about the differences between us that definitely should divide us. Today, we're going to talk about white nationalism. Specifically, we're going to talk about a book by Alexandra Minister,n Proud Boys and the White Ethnostate, How the Alt-Right is Warping the American Imagination. It is academic, but also very accessible, and unfortunately, it is never not relevant in today's world. Our guest, like I said, is Alexandra Minister,n She leads the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab at the University of Michigan and is a professor of American Culture, History, and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Thank you. So... You know, this is a, a his, this is kind of a, a very well grounded book of um, history and also current events, and it, it has an academic uh, rigor to it. But I understand from reading your introduction, this started as a very from kind of a personal place. Can you explain how you came to write this? Well, I've written previously on the history of eugenics in American society and really beyond. And um, I've always been interested in understanding where ultra-right movements are and what they're up to. And around 2015, 2016, I was kind of seeing what came to be called the alt-right out of my rearview mirror, so to speak, when I was like doing research or searching things online. And I realized that, um, I mean, I knew that American eugenicists like Madison Grant and others were favored by raced realists and um, others, but I didn't realize the extent to which they were being rehabilitated and repurposed by the alt-right. 
And so as I delved into the webzines and kind of the online world of the alt-right, I began to see the omnipresence of eugenic ideas around demography, around breeding, around race, around reproduction. And that piqued my interest, and um, I wanted to understand more. And this just became a very intense project that I worked on for about two years, um, bolstered by well, a lot of the scholarly research that I'd done in the past, but also delving into new areas in media studies and digital studies to really understand the social media aspects. And I guess maybe I'm overestimating the importance, but wasn't there an incident at the University of Michigan? Oh, yes. Okay, thank you for reminding me. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, all so much was happening around um, 2015, 2016. And there was there have been and at that time was I don't know if it was one of the first, but it was one of the first kind of most dramatic incidents of postering of racist posters appearing in the very building where I teach around campus, which elicited a pretty strong reaction on the part of the administration and among students. And um, I was involved uh, with a group of faculty and students that what we did was we basically countered, you know, with facts and research, um, you know, we countered the claims that were made in these posters, which had to do with race and IQ and the hypersexuality of black men and a range of other disturbing and upsetting both images and facts that were just decontextualized and plastered all over the the hallways. So, yes, that was one part of it. So it was kind of a confluence of of both immediate things happening immediately in 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 my kind of day-to-day world and also longer, long-standing um, scholarly interests I had. And also, you know, I'm a scholar activist, interest in, you know, um, writing something that could be, you know, useful for um, white allies and everyone else who's interested in pushing back against what this is, calling it out, naming it, understanding it. So there was also that kind of that strong motivation as well. Now, Proud Boys is in the title, obviously. Proud Boys in the White Ethnostate. I learned a lot about Proud Boys reading this. Uh, Perhaps the thing that's always going to stick with me is the fact that they got their name from a lyric in Aladdin, which (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs) Yes. But you don't just write about the Proud Boys, obviously. They're sort of one part of a, a larger conglomeration. And in the book, you, you're very careful to not conflate all of these different kinds of, and I'm trying to think what the overall word would be. Um, this the alt-right, the alt-light, um, proud boys, neo-Nazis, white nationalists. They're not all exactly the same. Like, what is the, what is the general heading for that group of people? You know, a heterogeneous ensemble of groups um, opposed to feminism, liberalism, their own understanding of what diversity is, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a kind of set of groups that are anti uh, a range of things that they associate with mainstream society. I don't want to say those things are mainstream society. Um, And they're connected by, I'd say, one of the kind of strongest glue the, the strong with well, the strongest glue that binds them perhaps is anti-feminism i mean they're really that's one of the things i really wanted to get across in in this book is that you know you can't 
understand white supremacy today without understanding its strong gendered and, and, and sexual dimension, sexualized dimensions. And so that certainly is an element that runs through all of these groups in some way, shape, or form. It's obviously quite prominent for the Proud Boys, which is all about performing a certain type of, of masculinity and, you know, a kind of more nuanced form of masculinity that one might think than one might think uh, initially, but a very toxic form of masculinity nonetheless. What do you think the dangers of conflating those groups are? Because you do warn a couple times about the way that the media uh, hypes up um, and sensationalizes some of this stuff. And as a member of the media, I mean, I understand why my colleagues do that, in part because it's just easier <laughs> to, to, to slap a label on these things, and in part because it gets people excited and interested. But, but what do you think is the harm done when we don't distinguish between these groups? Well, I think that's a really important question, and that's something that I actually am struggling with, you know, as I talk about this more scholarly text, you know, on the media and and think about it in the context of pushing back. I mean, on the one hand, it, you know, and some argue and argue quite persuasively that it makes sense to call these groups or most of these groups white supremacists because they are white supremacists. Um, and that, but that's kind of the shorthand version. Because if you use that label, I think it it packs a punch and it points out, um, you know, kind of the extreme the extreme dimensions of these groups. On the other hand, when you do that, you can lose some of the understanding. For example, we were just talking about you know kind of the the masculinity and the gendered elements of these groups. That can definitely fall to the wayside. If they're just being labeled white supremacist or neo-Nazi, the focus almost always is on race, on anti-Semitism, um, on those particular aspects. Um, so that's one thing. And another thing that I you know, really think is important, and that's one of the things I try to do in the book, is to deconstruct these groups on their own terms. So look at their own terms and deconstruct those and um, show the corrosive elements and the kind of the violent aspects within those very terms so that we don't need to, yes, for shorthand, let's just put the label white supremacist on them. But if we really want to understand where they're coming from without amplifying what they're saying, and again, that's another challenge of doing this. Like, how do you actually understand these groups on their own terms without amplifying their own messages and, and giving them too much airtime? But I think that words are so important and the discursive elements of the rise of the alt-right are super important to understand how they have been, although they aren't always, have been successful at least of some aspects of the language game in politics and culture. So pushing back is unpacking some of the language that they use. So that's why, for example— you know, I think it's really important to look at white nationalism. So white nationalism is often conflated with white supremacism for good reasons. And, you know, we can understand that on first blush. However, if you begin to deconstruct what, you know, some of these groups mean by white, national by white nationalism, what they mean is, from their perspective, a rejection of white supremacism because they don't want to be part of a country where whites are ruling over other minority groups. They want to live in their own fantasy homogenous homeland, which is at least 90% white people. 
and other people of color and, you know, others who don't want to partake of these, you know, these territorial systems, well, they can just go live in their own ethnostates. So white nationalism itself is kind of a product of our, at least this iteration, a product of our particular moment and the kinds of demographic changes that are going on in American society, um, you know, awareness that we're moving towards a, an ethno-racial plurality in the United States. So I think contextualizing white nationalism is, is important and unpacking, you know, what they portray as kind of the beneficence of that particular uh, of their own definition and saying, well, wait a second, if you follow out the implications of this, what you get to is you get to removal and deportation and the incitation of violence yeah. and so on and so forth. So that's where, for me, I just am very, I just think it's very important to tease out um, the nuances of um, of these different terms. I I will put my marker down for I do think white supremacist works pretty well for all of them. That is my habit, although I understand exactly what you're saying about the differentiation. But all of it kind of boils down to white supremacy in my mind, right? Like the white nationalists, why do they want a white ethnostate? Because they think that other races are polluting their gene pool. They do believe that whites are better. I mean, they pay lip service to this idea that, no, we just want to be separate. But the reason they want to be separate is because they don't like the idea of mixing, right? Indeed, indeed. And and they realize that, the, you know, the idea and the reality of mixing is, you know, kind of what they are, they're swimming in. Right. I also think it's important, I, I want to point out, white nationalism, though, is also an important term to use because it is the term of art right now. You're right. It's a it's the product of a, this this particular moment. And what it seems like to me is that white nationalism or proclaiming yourself a white nationalist is 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 normalizing it, right? And I don't know if white supremacist is too f- much further down the road. You point out in the book that already a lot of the people in this movement are saying the quiet part loud, you know, in terms of like the Southern strategy talked around race, right? But now we have people in the alt-right and and uh, national cons- – uh, what did they – there was a conference just last week, uh, conservative nationalism. That's what they call yes. themselves. Mm-hmm. And and they're kind of saying that they're going further than the th- Southern strategy, at least the way they talk about nationalism, you know, and the way they talk about political strategy. They bring race to the surface pretty quickly. Now, they like you – know, like what you're saying, they insist this is not about any kind of supremacy. They insist this is just about cohesion, but I think that's pretty easily disputed. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, basically, you know, I do agree with you that, you know, as an overall label, we need to use white supremacy and to call it out as what it is. But if we want to understand what kind of language games they're playing and this kind of, you know, ambivalent relationship or, um, you know, what would, what would the word be? Ambivalent or kind of a strategic relationship they have with dog whistles. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they use dog whistles or are trying to invent their own dog whistles. And other times it's just, you know, blatant overt racism. Mm-hmm. And so that blurry line is something to really be aware of. And I think, you know, just to go back to your point about nationalism, I mean, I really think that we have to push back against their um, claims on nationalism 
because, you know, again, they want to, you know, as I argue in the book, you know, basically vacate civic nationalism and put ethno-nationalism in its place. And also by connecting themselves to nationalism, that's a step away from patriotism. And you'll see, I anticipate we're going to see that word creeping out more and more. You know, we're just patriots. We just believe in patriotism, which has a long history in the U.S. connected to jingoism and things like that. But that's kind of becoming a word du jour. And by, you know, seizing on nationalism, it's also a way of, you know, uh, trying to gain some credibility and some connection to nationalist movements worldwide, whether it's in, you know, Hungary, Italy, Brazil. So this is really a global phenomenon. And so that's one of the ways in which they want to kind of put down their flag. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Be right back. You probably know you should be taking vitamins to help supplement your diet, but with so many options, how do you know which nutrients you need and which nutrients you're probably getting enough of from your diet? That is why you need Ritual. Women deserve a clean, effective multivitamin they can trust. When Kat Schneider realized that this didn't exist, she decided to create her own and founded Ritual. Ritual is the obsessively researched multivitamin designed for women by women. Ritual contains nine nutrients that are difficult to get enough of in your everyday diet. So instead of taking a handful of five to eight vitamins, Ritual makes it easy with two capsules a day. You can order online at ritual.com for around a dollar a day. Ritual is delivered to your door monthly so you can stay on track with your new healthy habit. Ritual Essential for Women is the multivitamin reimagined. It is vegan certified, sugar-free, gluten and allergy-free. No wonder Vogue, The New York Times, CNN, and Forbes have all taken notice. Their revolutionary capsule technology combines nine oily and dry ingredients into a single pill, including vitamin E, vegan omega-3 from algae, iron, magnesium, folate, vitamin K2, and vitamin B12. Ritual's capsules have a no-nausea design, so they're gentle on an empty stomach, and there is a mint tab in every bottle to help mask any fishy aftertaste. Ritual is traceable and transparent. They search the globe for the best suppliers, and they are transparent about where their sources come from. If you want to know more, you can find everything on the website. Easy, all-in-one, everything I want. That is why Ritual is the daily multivitamin I choose, and I, I do actually use it. I really love my Ritual. Try Ritual today because you'll get an exclusive offer of 10% off your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's 10% off your first three months at ritual.com slash friends. How much do you think about your socks? It's a bad sign, I think, if you're thinking about your socks too much. I happen to be thinking about mine a lot today because I'm reading this ad and because I am wearing my Bombas socks. I am reading my Bombas ad. I'm wearing my Bombas socks. If you listen to the show on a regular basis, you will know that what I really love about Bombas is that they make a no-show sock that is genuinely no-show but also doesn't slip, and it uh, acts. It is a sock. It is a no-show sock, exactly what it sounds like. If you've ever tried to get these socks for yourself, if you've ever tried to find a good no-show sock, you know how impossible that search can feel. Um, they either are not no-show, they like ride up a little bit around the ankle, or, and this is the worst, they slide down your ankle so that you're basically wearing half a sock after a few steps. Bombas don't do that. They are genuinely no-show. They also stay up. 
My husband doesn't like the no-show. He actually likes the Bombas that are very much show, the colors, patterns, lengths, styles. He wears them for work. He also wears them on the weekend. And I think they even, yep, he wears them for his athletic socks as well. Buy your own Bombas at bombas.com slash friends today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash friends for 20% off. Bombas.com slash friends. You know, another thing that ties these groups together, which you go back to the Proud Boys, white nationalists, white supremacists, alt-right, neo-Nazis, alt-light, all of those things, is they're not exactly on a spectrum, but you do tease out the ways in which people become radicalized within these groups, right? Like, they start out consuming. Jordan Peterson is is the, probably the most infamous person uh, in in this paradigm, And then they kind of stroll down the road to some alt-light, and then they get more and more radical. And we've talked on this show a lot about kind of the way that that happens somewhat, I don't want to say accidentally, but it it happens on kind of a self-propelled journey down a rabbit hole. But in the book, you lay out how much of that uh, journey towards extremism is actually cultivated, by people in these movements, that the red pilling, they're handing out red pills. Red pills aren't just magically appearing um, in people's hands. Definitely. I mean, I actually think, you know, that at the end of writing this book, you know, if I were to write another book, I would write a book that would just focus on, you know, what has been called the Mm alt-light, because I view that as very kind of nebulous, dangerous territory between you know, um, white, you know, harder core white supremacism and a range of dissatisfied individuals, you know, let's say, you know, white Americans who are searching for something, um, who are disaffected, who are spending a lot of time online, who are partaking of social media culture, which is a lot of people, and they want a compelling message. They often want a message that is black and white in a whole range of different ways, but it's a, you know, it's a dichotomous message, a clear-cut message. And it is pretty striking that, you know, it, it makes sense in a way that, you know, Jordan Peterson and others who have large numbers of large numbers of followers are able to red pill more people because they're reaching more people. But they, you know, get folks into this kind of binary thinking and the kind of anti-feminism, the tra- traditionalism, it's gender traditionalism, but it then can be extrapolated to other forms of thinking about kind of organization and order in society And so, yes, I would say they're kind of self-propelled journeys. It's also important to note that, know that, uh, also to note that, you know, the way in which people engage with social media platforms and the way in which social media platforms, until they have started questioning it somewhat fairly recently, let's not overstate it, but looking at how um, these uh, platforms are moderated, how content is kind of upvoted, how the algorithms that kind of give people access to new content. I mean, why is it that if you watch one of these kind of vlogs on, you know, Facebook or another platform, another one will emerge? And so the idea, you know, often what happens is that people end up starting with, you know, someone like Stefan Molyneux, and then then at the end they're watching, you know, kind of a 
uh, talk that was given at an American Renaissance conference. So that is also part of the puzzle, and that seems like something that always needs to be part of this conversation is the social media environment and how that has functioned and how that has helped to perpetuate the rise of white supremacism. Something my friend Anil Dash likes to observe is that because white men built these platforms, of course they privilege whiteness and patriarchy, right? Like it's kind of built into them that they would be easily abused because the people that built them don't think about abuse, right? Like they're protected from abuse because of their whiteness and their maleness. Um, So it just doesn't occur to people to have some, some kind of reservation about the awesomeness of free speech, you know, or the awesomeness of like crowds upvoting. I want to return back to differentiating these groups. We talked about the importance of needing to distinguish between them. And then we didn't really do, we did distinguish between white nationalists and white supremacists, but maybe we should, we should drill down a little bit more. Proud Boys, I think I can offer a, a definition, which is it's a specific group. Like it's like a, a thing that people say they belong to, right? It's a club, of sorts, founded by a specific person, Gavin McGinnis. And they have like initiation rituals that are self-consciously weird, I'd say, right? Um, Yeah, (laughs) all about performing masculinity for one another and, you know, showing they have self-control and, but also with this kind of like always this parodic element to it as well. Yeah. It's like, you know, the antics of the fraternity type of thing. Right. So they withstand from masturbation and they have to get beat up but also name five breakfast cereals. Those are the two like weird, like weirdest things. Uh, and then there's the other ones which are are less, uh, you know, are more nebulous. They're not like these distinct things that you can say you're a member of. I'm joining the Proud Boys. You don't join the alt light. People probably have a sense of what the alt right is. Do you want to distinguish for people between the alt right and alt light? Well, I mean. In general, the distinction has been, you know, that the alt-right has been more allied with white nationalism and has been, you know, willing to speak out for white nationalism and to have a very very race-conscious agenda to push white identity politics, as they would call it, front and center, and to support, for example— a white ethno state and to really, you know, focus on kind of racial difference and white superiority and so on. The alt-light is maybe dog whistling that more or and or is less interested in that and more interested in um, things like gender traditionalism or pushing back against, um, you know, diversity, multiculturalism, social justice, you know, very anti-left, anti-feminism. And so that doesn't always, you know, take you right, you know, uh, lead right to white nationalism, but they are very, they're adjacent to one another and they're often overlapping with one another. And I will say also, and this I think is an important distinction, is that you know, to the extent that we think of the alt-right as being connected to white nationalism, white nationalists produce a lot of content and ideas, some of which take the form of like long-form essays or books, you know, 300, 400-page books that have been written, That books that have footnotes, books where they're attempting to make an argument. They also draw on, you know, kind of a right-wing canon, some of which was written uh, by European uh, new right authors, whereas the alt-light really, from 
what I can tell, you know, exists almost wholly, you know, in social media celebrity land. <laughs> um, and these are folks who, you know, have make, they basically make their careers um, to the extent they've been able to monetize their platforms by doing vlogs, by having shows, by having super chats when they do their interviews. Um, and so it's an interesting relationship between kind of different zones of idea making and let's say, you know, meme making. And I just want to also add that one of the kind of my main goals with this book was not to look so much at the organizations and the individuals. Um, journalists have done that really well. And there also is a risk of, you know, amplification when you're looking at particular people or getting kind of engrossed, like what is their psychological profile why did, to take a well-known example, you know, Richard Spencer become the way that he became? I really wanted to understand, like, what are the core ideas of this newest iteration of white supremacism in the United States? How much are they echoing, you know, kind of longer standing neo-fascist ideas? And to what extent is this, are they new or being repackaged? And so I really try to focus on the ideas and to kind of help to lead people through uh, deconstruction of these ideas and so we can have a handle on them and we can understand them. I want to get back to red pilling, which I guess quickly defined. That is that the red pill is, of course, a reference to the matrix. And in this subculture, it's uh, it means you've come uh, become aware of the way that society is rigged against basically white men, I would say. Um, now, obviously, I don't think that's true, but that's that's the revelation that people have is that multiculturalism is bad and feminism is bad. And they've had this, again, revelation or awakening. It's kind of interesting and ironic that they use some of the same language of religion and also of the left. Right. Indeed. There's much appropriation of that. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. But to get back to red pilling, we talked about um, the self-propelled journey. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I think all these groups have in common also is, again, that self-conscious kind of recruitment mentality that they have, that they want to introduce, they, they want to evangelize their beliefs to use to borrow the language of religion again. They're self-consciously out there thinking, like, how can we make these ideas more appealing? Uh, that is definitely the case. And I mean, that is the whole you know, if you want to, one of the things I did for this book was I delved into listening to all kinds of podcasts and, you know, really interviews and conversations. I just want to note that, you know, I never um, took on an alias or an avatar. I never actually, you know, um, signed up for Gab. I actually am not on social media. So I did all of this by available content, some of which I dug incredibly deep for. Um, to get access to, and a bunch of which has since been removed from the internet, and some of it can be found on the Wayback Machine, but some of it is just kind of, you know, has has vanished. Um, but in any case, you know, when you listen to these three- and four-hour um, vlogs and discussions, and believe me, some of them go on for a long, long time, where these guys just like to hear themselves talking, <laughs> they become, you know, pretty, um, the, you know, Un, you know, unself, not very self-conscious of what they're saying. And that's when you can get a real sense, okay, well, what's going on here? And so there's a real interest in 
you know, and other people have talked about this and like, how do we make these ideas palatable to normies? What are some of the ways in which we can kind of push our message, just push it far enough to begin to let it seep in, you know, to test the waters? So some examples that, you know, are, are thrown out by, you know, some of these white nationalists are, well, let's drop the names of like our guys, as they like to call them. So Ann Coulter is one of their guys. Steve Saylor is one of their guys. Tucker Carlson is one of these guys and kind of get a reaction. The other, and this is really um, important to, to be on the lookout for, is, you know, an interest in really starting, you know, grassroots politics, start at the local level, like get on the school board, get on the local transportation board, get on local county boards and begin to, you know, build up some political um, cachet and, and sway that way. So there's both a kind of discursive and, you know, kind of testing the waters of, you know, um, our our beliefs or, you know, where are we finding commonality with, you know, usually it's with um, white Republicans and there's a well-known um, alt-writer who was involved in, you um, canvassing uh, students for Trump in the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, now he's very active with the American identity, identity, uh, American identity movement, which used to be Identity Europa, by the way, they kind of rebranded their name. But in any case, so you will find them, you know, circulating on the local level and among some contingents of kind of like white conservatism, white republicanism, um, but I think that's a lot of what's going on. And um, that evangelizing is, you know, it's interesting. It, it's, I think it is different than kind of, it is different than the, you know, neo-Nazi or KKK evangelizing of the 70s and 80s, which was much more about, you know, let's say the punk rock scene or, um, you know, biker culture or, you know, um, it, it, it a different almost had it had a different class dimension to it as well. I mean, now what we're seeing is an attempt among these groups to really kind of suit up um to get, you know, fashy haircuts and to find ways to just be more compelling and more appealing. And I mean, one of the things that I remember Richard Spencer saying in one of these podcasts, which has since been taken down, is like what the movement needs to do now is to just start claiming all the American symbols. So Mm -hmm. Stars and Stripes, Uncle Sam, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why I think we're going to see more of a, you know, what I'm concerned about now is, you know, the way in which both certain aspects of, you know, um, conservatism, hardcore conservatism, and white nationalism are coming together around patriotism, around certain understandings of nationalism, and particularly around racism, where, you know, as you were mentioning before at this recent conference, things are becoming more blatant and are on the surface. Um, So that was a kind of circular answer to your question, (laughs) but, um, you know, it gets at some of what I think are, are the key points. Everyone wants their home to look and feel great. Luckily, Snow makes that incredibly simple. They create trend-proof, beautiful, functional pieces made for how you live. The thing that they gave me to try out, where they gave me an op- a lot of options, and 
I decided to get my husband one of their incredibly luxurious looking robes, um, really like high plush robe. It sat or hung in our, our bathroom for a long time. He seemed reluctant to try it out. I don't know why. Maybe he just didn't think he was a robe kind of guy. And then about a month ago, I was doing something in the kitchen and he strolled into the living room wearing the robe with his hand in one of the pockets, uh, looking a little like Hugh Hefner, and he declared he loved it. He just didn't know how comfortable it would be. He didn't know how awesome it would make him feel. And today, my friends, I often find him lounging in his robe, which for some reason, I guess I never thought of him as a robe person either. And that robe is from Snow. Snow has rave reviews on all of its products, including towels and sheets in addition to these great robes. They have dishwasher-safe porcelain dinnerware and wine glasses with titanium-enforced stems. They've gotten those rave reviews not just from users, but also from Vogue, Fast Company, Apartment Therapy, and more. It is the home collection of your dreams, priced for your reality. And right now, Snow is offering my listeners $30 off your first purchase of $150 or more when you go to snowhome.com slash friends. That's S-N-O-W-E home.com slash friends for $30 off your first order, snowhome.com slash friends. Cats are natural-born predators, and there's nothing they like better than the thrill of a good chase. That's why the folks at Petronix invented Mouser, M-O-U-S-R, a fully autonomous robotic mouse that can actually sense and react to how your cat is playing. Mouser even has an all-day play mode, so you can turn it on when you leave for work, and Mouser will wake up whenever your cat wants to play. It has a fully customizable auto-play mode and a smartphone remote control interface designed just for cats, although I presume that you use it and not the cat. There are also interchangeable tail attachments. Mouser is the last toy your cat will ever need. Now, it does say here that cats are natural-born predators. I will confess that um, my cats seem more like natural-born nappers. We have a very chonky boy and girl. And the vet has told us we need to do more to get them to play. And that is why I am excited about Petronics. Um As folks may know, I actually don't leave the house much, so there's no excuse for me not to play with them. They have lost a little weight since we got the dog, but I'm excited to have the vet tell me I'm a better cat mom next time I see him. And right now, my listeners can save 20% by visiting petronics.io slash friends and using code friends at checkout. That's petronics, P-E-T-R-O-N-I-C-S dot io slash friends with checkout code friends to save 20% because your cat is worth it. I also think this is a good opportunity for us to kind of circle back to the important link between uh, patriarchy and anti-feminism and white nationalism. Because as I think you mentioned, one of the entrees that Jordan Peterson offers is a message to uh, young white men who feel disempowered to say to them, the real order of the universe, in, in the actual order of the universe, you're on top. The way that the universe should be is that, you know, you're going to be running things. And instead, we have this toxic environment where feminists have gone too far. Multiculturalism has gone too far. Um, and, and what you and here come along on the I will teach you how to be the man that you need to be. I think I've summarized that pretty correctly. 
Um, and and that that and it, it may not make sense to people on first blush, but that uh, sensitivity to feminism is actually for many people. It sounds like the first step to white nationalism. That those two forms of supremacy are actually really deeply linked. Do you want to explain the connection there? Yeah, indeed. I mean, you've laid out a lot of the groundwork, which is, you know, again, it goes back to to kind of the red pilling, like what, um, you know, bill of goods have white men been sold in society, you know, where um, they're not, you know, getting the jobs that they think they should be getting, where they're not, you know, kind of able to be the alphas that they, you know, have told that have been told they can be and think they should be. So it starts with kind of, you know, anti-feminism. And it's it's not just, you know, uh, misogyny and hatred of women. It's important to look at the ways in which anti-feminism interlocks with a range of other, you know, quote unquote, mainstream concerns, because mm-hmm. in their eyes, you know, feminism has overtaken America. Now, as a feminist, I would <laughs> argue strongly, against, you know, with that. Yeah, they keep telling but... me socialism is taking over, too, but I don't know if <laughs> that's that... right. <laughs> so, um, you know, so but anti-feminism is connected to what else? It's connected to multiculturalism. It's co- connected to globalism, which is a code word for Jews. Mm-hmm. And so there's an anti-Semitic element to this as well. So once you start pulling kind of, you know, the threads out of the ball of yarn, you begin to see how all these different pieces are interconnected. And I would say that, you know, the patriarchal element of this is really important, not only because this sense of like aggrieved entitlement and wanting to reclaim what should have been, you know, theirs, but also because it's very much connected to, again, these ideas of traditionalism and order. And that's one of the things Jordan Peterson says is like, female is chaos, male is order, you know, um, order should, you know, trump chaos. And if order is restored, you know, all will be well again. So there's this nostalgic idea to it. And so that's just part of the package. And that logic, I mean, that kind of logic that's part of the, you know, anti-feminist logic is a logic that runs through much of the white nationalist thinking, no matter what facet of the kind of eight ball that you look at. Yeah, it seems to me, I think this is how you put it in the book, which is that so you might start on this journey by coming to agree that feminism is cancer or that feminism, actually, let's make it more gentle, right? You start by, yeah, feminism, feminists do have too much power. Yeah, I agree. And then you get a little further into it, talks by Jordan Peterson being a good example, and you start to come to the belief that, yes, there is an order to the universe, and in that order, women should be lesser, right? And that maybe is the key thing, because once you start believing in a hierarchical universe, the step from men should have uh, dominion over women to white people <laughs> have something special about them in a high, in the hierarchy, they should be maybe considered top. That that's just not as far a leap once you buy in to the rightness of hierarchy. Yeah, I think hierarchy is a very good term to use here, and also thinking about essentialism, mm-hmm. the idea that groups, whether it's differently, you know, gendered groups, um, you know, have essentialist qualities that should be ordered in one way, and races, you know, mm-hmm. have essentialist whether it's 
biological essentialism or whether it's more of a cultural essentialism. We shouldn't d- discount that. Um, and, you know, the other thing about thinking hierarchically is that that is antithetical to embracing a, so- a society that wants equality mm-hmm. because with hierarchy can exist inequalities. And in fact, inequalities are natural. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the very insidious, dangerous ideas that's, again, uh, under the, as part of the substrate is strong anti-egalitarianism. And well, what does that mean? That means that, you know, we go back to social contracts that were um, born out of revolution, you know, in the 17th and 18th century, that yes, we know they really were problematic and we know, you know, what who life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were for in American society. And we know that had to be contested and challenged intensely over time to make it more equitable. But nonetheless, in their version of, you know, anti-egalitarianism, even that's going too far. Mm-hmm. Because it's a society based on a social contract in which there are liberal subjects who should have equal access to various types of goods and 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 things like that. So it's, you know, it's really kind of it's it's anti in that way. It's anti-republican thinking, mm-hmm. one could say, in terms of the formation of kind of republics with covenants, and that is something that runs through a good strand of like neo-fascist thinking and writing. And, you know, that's also where some of the American uh, alt-right really connects to some of the European, um, you know, new right or, you know, not so new right, we might call it now, um, in terms of, you know, really taking egalitarianism apart and, and pushing back against it. And that's where the alternative part comes in, because the alternative rejects the Republican or the Democratic version of that for something which is outside of it. I think talking about hierarchy and and that being a central tenet that that in the journey, then sort of the next step, right? That allows you to take a lot of more extreme steps. It is also what gets you to policy. I think once you embrace hierarchy, we get to sort of the second part of your title. That's where we get to the ethnostate. Because once you are bought into gender essentialism and racial essentialism and, and uh, all of and, and believe that there is a right hierarchy to those essentials, that is when the idea of having your culture polluted by lesser ones leads you to policies that actually, I mean, you mentioned in the book, like we're actually the trition. Well, let's say we, because he is the president of the United States and maybe everyone bears some responsibility for this. But we as a country are enacting policies that link back to that, those notions of hierarchy and essentialism, which is to say extreme vetting for immigrants, imprisoning children on the border. Like those are the things that you get if you follow the journey of someone who believes in white nationalism, right? Um, indeed. I mean, you know, the ethnostate, I mean, that's one of the, what it was, one of my object, objectives in the book was to really kind of look seriously at this blueprint for the ethnostate and understand what was behind it, how it, how it would be constituted, um, what it would involve, understand the um, very destructive implications and the racist implications of what that would look like. 
And But if you actually look at, well, what are the policies that are suggested? And there are some white nationalist writers who have come up actually with like flow charts and algorithms for plotting what the ethnostate would look like. You know, the key, um, you know, tactics that they think the state should employ are, you know, things that are going on right now, which are, you know, deportation, repatriation, detention, um, revocation of birthright citizenship, um, outright bans um, on certain racial and social and national groups. Um, And so, you know, there is a way in which, you know, the ethnostate logic is at play in the United States right now and is really doing irreparable harm to uh, people on the border, both people who are coming here undocumented seeking asylum and as ACLU and other studies have shown, um, you know, American citizens with social security numbers who are being caught up in this web of, um, you know, of ICE, of ICE raids. So that is happening right now. Um, and, you know, it's the, the ultimate outcome is not likely to be a white ethnostate or the return of a white supermajority or anything like that. But nonetheless, these are... Um, you know, we know that these are cruel, racially motivated strategies um, that are part and parcel of what our country is doing right now. I mean, it, it is, you know, it's it's an outrage. And I that this is where I start to really be concerned. And well, I'm concerned about all of it. But to see how these logics are, you know, being enacted mm-hmm. on a daily basis now. These logics have been around before without the alt-right movement. You know, there was deportation in the 50s. There were all the repatriations in the 1920s and 1930s. So it's not that, again, you know, this hasn't happened before and that we aren't a nation that has been, you know, deeply affected and structured by white supremacy. But what's happening now resonates with some of the um, elements of the you know, imagine world of of white nationalists. Yeah, it it basically, like I said, uh, it's sometimes it's almost like comical to think of the actual structure of a of a white ethnostate. Like you go through some of the things that are very fanciful, you know. Um, but it, the fact that what they want to create, that their ideal seems pretty impossible, should not distract us from the fact that the policies that are being enacted right now are the policies that you would enact if you wanted a white ethnostate, that that is what is happening. Whatever denials the people behind these policies have, whatever beliefs they might have, what they are doing fits in with a program of literal white supremacy, you know, like. That's just what it is. And that is connected to, you know, really, um, you know, clanging the bells of demographic crisis and demographic concern all of the time, which is something that preoccupies, you know, white supremacists and white nationalists today is, you know, and that is also reflected in, um, you know, the ongoing struggles about the citizenship category on the census and what, who is the census actually going to count and, who is counted is going to then, you know, affect projections about what, uh, you know, America will look like in 2050. And so that is, and, you know, there are articles in the New York Times about, you know, is this, is white identity politics on the rise because of awareness of census projections? 
I think we could we should kind of reframe how some of those questions are being asked. But nonetheless, I don't see that going away anytime soon. And that type of rhetoric being out there and, you know, those questions being in kind of the mainstream media kind of feed into these, you know, um, feed into kind of, you know, the bigger the bigger picture. I also think this is a good place for us to return back to how uh, patriarchy and anti-feminism fits in with uh, the ethnostate and white supremacy. I I had this revelation reading your book, which is that whenever we talk about policies about immigration, we need to remember that there's a flip side, at least for people who recognize themselves as white nationalists, which is that white women need to breed. Like, step one is to keep the, the brown and black people out and an import, but just as important is to make sure the white women breed. That that I think whenever we talk about the border, I think those of us that care about pushing back on this stuff should kind of have at the back of our mind that anti-abortion restrictions are are also a part of what's going on. Seems like to me. Yeah, I would say that reproductive politics and kind of controlling that is at the center of. Um, patriarchy and white nationalism. I mean, in, and that connects to, you know, the other, you know, historical moments that I've studied around kind of eugenics. And, you know, we can see a replay here of the positive eugenics, as it was called in the early 20th century, incentives for, you know, white middle-class families to breed, to have definitely more than 2.1 children, ideally four to six children, immigration laws, you know, to keep out um, brown and, and black people and um, also to to police the borders. And so you can take apart a construct like the anchor baby, you know, quote unquote, you know, that's as much about race as it is about reproduction, as it is about, you know, kind of misogyny focused on, you know, brown women who, um, you know, as eugenicists earlier and white nationalists today you know, um, speak of as being overly fecund and, you know, needing to be, you know, controlled, whether it's through, you know, keeping them out of the body politic or potentially, you know, sterilizing them or breaking up families. Family separation is also can be put in this kind of in in this larger puzzle. I want to start to bring us around to to a conclusion. And I'm going to start that in a place that people may not expect, which is another revelation um, that your book brought up out, which is that transphobia is another piece of glue that binds these movements together, which people probably may recognize that uh, there's particular people we've mentioned, like Jordan Peterson, are, are transphobic. But you explore the fact that the transphobia is something that I think glue is maybe a good word. Uh, I don't know if it undergirds everything, but it's just a really interesting symptom of 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 this thinking of this entire conglomeration. Yeah, I mean, you know, this goes back to the themes we were talking about before about essentialism and order and hierarchy. And really, you know, it's not just about white male entitlement. It's about cisgendered, you know, cisgendered white male entitlement. And really, um, one of the things that was interesting in exploring some of the debates and back and forth, and there's a lot of rancorous back and forth um, among white nationalists is, you know, takes on, um, on, 
homosexuality or an LGBTQ, and some, you know, really don't care. You know, if it's white people for white people, that's okay. If they're gay, it's mainly about men because they usually don't really think lesbians exist or just like to to denigrate them. But what really, you know, um, is extremely destabilizing and concerning for them are trans folks. And that's because, again, from their perspective, you know, if it's about, you know, if it's a male body with kind of, you know, tip, you know, typical male anatomy um, who happens to be a man who happens to be attracted to another man, that's okay. That can kind of fit sometimes in their ordered system. Not all of them. Some of them are extremely homophobic. But, you know, if it's anything that disrupts that kind of, you know, the biological fixity, um, you know, of of the human body that and, and the genderedness of it, you know, it really, it's just destabilizing. Mm-hmm. And so there's this seething transphobia that is, and if anyone goes, you know, on the Twitter accounts of any of these folks and look at them, within every seventh tweet will be something, will be an anti-trans tweet or an anti-drag queen tweet or an anti something that we would call gender fluidity or gender non-binary tweet. And so, I really think we have to kind of, you know, keep track of that as um, a key key element of this going forward. And it, of course, resonates with, you know, the Trump administration's, um, you know, hostility uh, towards trans people and also the fact that, you know, we see violence against trans folks every day. And I don't want to turn it just into a victimization narrative about trans folks because that's not that's really not cool. you know, there's a lot of great stuff and organizing going on, and I wouldn't want to do that to my trans friends and allies. But um, in any case, I think it's important just to to put that in context, just like we see, you know, the white ethnostate logics, we see the transphobia logics at play. And I wanted to bring up the transphobia piece as we begin to wind down our conversation, because I think this also gets us to the question of, so what can we do? Because I think illuminating the place of transphobia in the larger terrifying logic of white supremacy and ethno-nationalism, I think it should be a wake-up call to people who consider themselves allies. Because I know that I hear from people of my age group who consider themselves left, sometimes they can feel, I, I get, I, I hear expressed, why are we talking so much about trans people, you know? Like, that's not our agenda. We need to focus on Trump and we need to uh, not alienate swing voters. Um, and if we focus on if we if we make this an issue, then we're, you know, we're going to give up something. And I think from reading your book, what I understand is that it's more important than ever to, to push back on transphobia, that that's like a leading edge of this whole terrifying you know, uh, hairball. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's, um, I, you know, I agree because I, I, I wrote it and, you know, that was part of the whole process of deconstructing the, the logics of white nationalism, you know, is also to really um, be allies to people who are inhabiting um, what, more liminal identities or more precarious identities um, today. So that includes trans folks who are under attack, both on the level of policy, 
and in the streets, and also undocumented people um, who are betwixt and between, you know, nations um, and, you know, have experienced family disruption. So, um, you know, in terms of what can we do, you know, as someone who has taken kind of a scholarly approach to this, I'm really committed to continuing to follow, decode, deconstruct, disassemble the language of the alt-right and, you know, turn that back against the alt-right. That's one thing I really want to do. And the second is to, you know, um, where we can, um, you know, participate in, you know, supporting the very groups that are being the most affected, you know, by these logics. I do get the sense um, from reading your book, and this ties in a little bit to the idea of what can we be doing, that defeating Trump would not be a solution to this. Uh, that, that you know, I, I believe that Trump is a symptom of, of a larger problem. And it seems like reading your history here, he, I, I feel validated, I guess, in my, in my view, that, that if we all work together and turn out and everything in 2020, that doesn't mean that this isn't going to get worse in terms of the power and the attraction of these white supremacists. What do you think? Well, you know, some like to say this is like the last gasp of, you know, white supremacy. And I tend to think of it more as like a raspy, long, drawn-out breath, and I don't quite know how long that breath is going to be held. Um, And I am concerned about, you know, the particular moment that we're living through and the fact that, you know, there are survey research has been done that shows that about— 30% of white Americans agree with various types of statements such as white heritage needs to be protected, white people's rights are under assault, um, you know, white people are victimized, and so on and so forth. No, one of those statements alone doesn't necessarily equal white nationalism. But if you look at the general kind of context in which, you know, at least sentiment among a certain, you know, 30% or more of whites is going that direction, that is very concerning. And I think you're right. I mean, in a way, um, you know, having a, you know, change at the level of, you know, uh, the president, if some, you know, if someone is elected, it's hard to tell who the Democrats are really going to put out there. You know, yes, that could change the tenor of certain things. But, you know, we are still living in a country that is fraught with racial politics, is fraught with gender politics. And there's a whole range of simmering issues that, frankly, you know, have never been resolved or have maybe been resolved or addressed in, you know, more progressive fashion in some parts of the country, but not at all in others. It's a very uneven landscape out there. Um, so indeed, and in, in a way, you know, we could be in an even more kind of a fractious situation in 2020, depending on, you know, who wins the White House. And, um, you know, especially as we continue to undergo, undergo demographic change in this country. And, you know, some of us are reading that very positively, you know, and um, are, you know, looking forward to an, living in an ethno-racial plurality. And some states already are that. 
And, you know, others will become more entrenched and we will become even more hostile to that possibility. So, you know, I am very concerned about, you know, going into this, you know, um, you know, this electoral season, you know, this stuff is going to be flamed more Mm -hmm. and it's going to become the temperature is going to become hotter. Um, And we didn't have much time to talk about, you know, what's going on in social media and what really does Deep, what has deplatforming done? What hasn't it done? But I'm overall, I think we could say that it's been inconsistent and kind of partial, and that social media, in a range of ways, will continue to play an important role. And that's also become a card on the part of the right is you know, um, playing the card of you know, cons- you know, bias against conservatives in the media and in the even the summit that Trump had a few weeks ago at the White House that was taking up those issues and. Um, so yeah, I'm very concerned going forward and I don't think there's no quick fix to this. What we need is, you know, deep structural progressive change in this society that, you know, in the ideal world would come from the ground up and at least be, you know, the top down supported in some fashion. That's very idealized. Um, but I think we're in a very tough place right now. So my last question and something that I thought about the entire time I was reading. How did you take care of yourself as you, you know, delved into these fever swamps? That's something I couldn't stop thinking about. Like she's she's listening to these four-hour vlogs. How how did you survive doing all this research? Well, I guess in in, in one sense I was primed because of the work I've done on the history of eugenics and sterilization, which, you know, I've been working on that topic for about 15 or 20 years and have seen many iterations of, um, you know, ugly um, gender politics and reproductive politics and looked at eugenics and racist immigration law. And so I was kind of familiar with some of of the language and the ideas. It was, you know, really upsetting at times, and I had to detoxify and take a break, um, especially when my own identities as, you know, an LGBTQ person and a person with, you know, Jewish family kind of writ large, like when those were pulled into the mix, you know, it is, it does sting, on the other hand, you know, I do feel a commitment to contributing what I can in this moment to um, unpacking these ideas and to pushing back against them by trying to understand them. So I was very motivated by that. And I will mention that um, when I was doing um, a bulk of the research for this book, I actually was in residence at a university in Germany. So I was spending a, a few months there. And um, that was very interesting because I was, you know, taking, I don't speak German, but I was, you know, surrounded enough in the culture and, and, and being in Europe at the time to kind of take a pulse on what was going on uh, with the rise of ethno-nationalism, not only the AFD in Germany, but, you know, what's going on in Hungary and Poland and Sweden and Italy. And so that really made it even more important for me to understand this as a transnational phenomenon. So in terms of self-care, it's basically, you know, you have to do this in intense bursts. You have to detoxify. You have to look at, like, keep your eye on the prize of, you know, trying to contribute a critical piece of of scholarship that hopefully, 
you know, is accessible and readable. And so those were the motivations that kind of kept me going. What's your favorite uh, form of self-care? I would just say walking. You know, (laughs) I'm a real walker. I like Rebecca Solnit and her whole take on walking. Um, Walk, relax. You know, it's a walking is something where you are kind of in your own headspace, but you're often you're interacting with your environment Um, and, you know, walking enough to loosen up and to kind of let go. And to that's also where I would get a lot of my, you know, ideas or be able to put the various, you know, kind of pieces of my argument together, reflect on, um, you know, what I'd been listening to. So pretty simple, um, but, you know, I'll definitely take it. You know, since I am fortunately, you know, bipedal and I can walk down the street and um, or walk out in the woods and, you know, just just reflect um, and find that center. So you can get up and do it again tomorrow. Indeed. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. Well, it was great to talk with you. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for all that you do. And that is it for the show. And I don't know about you, but I definitely need to take a long walk. Please take care of yourselves. <laughs>